Good morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fourth program in our 2012 series to be broadcast at this time on the second Monday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today asks, is the two-party system working or broken? We'll be discussing the role of the two-party system in federal elections and government, the effects of partisan politics in Congress, and possible alternatives to the current system. Later in the program, we'll be welcoming your calls with questions or comments. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our special guests today. Joining us by telephone is Lisa Borders. Lisa is a co-founder of No Labels, a 501c4 social welfare and advocacy organization dedicated to breaking the stranglehold that extremes have on our political process. She served as president of the Atlanta City Council of Atlanta, Georgia from 2004 to 2010, and she also serves as president of the Grady Health Foundation, the philanthropic arm of Grady Health System. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much. Also joining us by phone is Sandy Mizell. Sandy is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of Government at Colby College and Director of the Goldfarb Center for Public Affairs and Civic Engagement. Sandy, good morning. Good morning. So at the end of February, just to sort of tee this um, topic up, at the end of February, Olympia Snow announced that she would not seek re-election to the U.S. Senate in 2012 citing the extreme partisanship and the gridlock of, of, of obstructionism in the current political climate. News reports at that time cited research indicating that the two parties in Congress are now more polarized than at any time since the late 19th century during Reconstruction. Sandy, summarize for us the history of the two-party system in the U.S. government, and what do you think? Has that system reached the end of its run? Well, let me answer the second question first, which is no. Uh, the two-party system really started in, in the United States uh, in the Jeffersonian period when there was a debate over funding and assumption of the U.S. debt, and it has been a constant uh, uh, feature of the U.S. system since the early 19th century. The two parties that we have now uh, have been in existence and competing against each other since just before the Civil War. Uh, the Republican Party was formed in 1854. Their first presidential candidate was in 1856. Their second presidential candidate was Abraham Lincoln. The Democratic Party really traces itself back to Jefferson and more correctly to Jackson because the party transformed slightly at that period of time. Um, and there are a number of reasons why the two-party system uh, came into existence and, uh, existence and why it exists today. But let me just lay out one, which is that we have structured our government with a solitary, most important prize, the presidency, and with single-member, first-past-the-post districts uh, in virtually every uh, constituency. That means that each geographic constituency elects one representative who wins with a plurality. That isn't the case everywhere, but it's the case in, in the vast majority of electoral systems around the United States. And that, for better or, or, or worse, um, biases the elections in favor of a two-party system. Um, I don't think it is, it is seen its course. I think it's in, in serious trouble, but I don't think it's seen its course because I, uh, because I think the system is 
structure to, to favor it. We could change the system. We can go to the alternate vote system, which the city of Portland has used, which the city of Burlington has used, which Cambridge, Massachusetts uses, a number of other places. Um, but I think that's still a long way off. Lisa, describe the problem of partisanship in Congress as you see it, and do you think the two-party system still works? Well, thanks for having me. It's, it's my privilege to be with you, and I'll do the same as Sandy and, and start with the second question first. No, I don't think the two-party system has come to its end, but here's what I would tell our listeners is that the hyper-partisanship that is on both sides of the aisle, left and right, is driven by a small fraction of people who are incredibly noisy. Uh, and I think that happens in the base of the parties. And those folks are so disenchanted that they are screaming from the rooftops. They tend to have significantly more impact than their numbers would necessarily dictate. Uh, but we get very nervous, those of us who are in the middle and who are not necessarily Democrats or Republicans, but who vote for the best person or for the best concept or the best platform, you've got a silent majority, I believe. If you look at the numbers today, more people are claiming they are independents than are in either party. And the hyperpartisanship, I truly believe, is driven by these minorities on the fringes of both parties. But, San Sandy, I mean, it seems to me that, at least in the Senate, the parties have um, sort of stuck together. You know, the moderates are shrinking. People vote along partisan lines. Um, I, I think that's true, but I don't think that that, that disagrees with what was just said. Um, the, the, there's a statistic which is kept, which is the number of times a, ma a majority of one party, let me get it right, number of times a majority of one party votes, when a majority of one party votes against a majority of the other party, the percentage of time any individual senator votes with his or her party, um, so that 90% means that on 90% of the divided votes you vote with your party, well, those numbers are now up over 95% for almost all of the represent all the senators, Democrats and Republicans, with very few exceptions. The exceptions being Senator Snow, Senator Collins, Senator Ben Nelson um, from Nebraska, who's a Democrat. Um, and a couple of others, but the numbers go up and up and up, um, and I think it is caused by um, people on the fringes, but I, I think the effect is somewhat different. I would describe the effect as somewhat different, which is that they have a tremendous stake in the nominating process. Because they have a stake in the nominating process, they are choosing uh, representatives in Washington who, in fact, are more or less on the ideological fringes. And, and the, the view you can have of this is what the Republicans have just done in their presidential election, which is, I think, just a you know, grander picture of what's going on in many congressional districts and states, in which the far right in the Republican Party has driven, has elevated the candidacies of, of people like Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich and Herman Cain and, and Rick Perry and Michelle Bachman. And more importantly for our discussion today, I think has driven Governor Romney from a fairly, you know, uh, conservative centrist position to, on many issues, uh, contraception, abortion, immigration, um, the, the concept of social welfare, to a fairly right position. Mm. And, he, and, and I think that's a problem. Now, Lisa, you talked about the majority, and this is certainly true in Maine, the majority of voters in Maine are unenrolled. You know, uh, belong. plurality of voters, not a majority. Yeah, you're right, Sandy. Thank you for correcting um, more people are unenrolled than belong to either of the other parties. 
Um, is there an opportunity for a third party to coalesce that middle ground? No Labels isn't exactly a party, is it? No, No Labels is not a third party. And actually, we believe that the system in which we are working is one of the best, but it is at a dysfunctional point in its maturation. So what No Labels is seeking to do is fix the dysfunction rather than call for a third party. So as we talk with our senators and our congresspersons, we are encouraging the folks that belong to No Labels to actually reach out to their elected representatives. One of the things that I hear on the Hill all the time, and I get to visit quite often, uh, the senators and the congresspersons tell us they don't often hear from their constituents. So the grassroots movement that we started in December of 2010 with 1,000 people that now stands with half a million people, these are very vocal folks, and we've, what we've done is put our voices together. So we have a collective compelling voice uh, that hopefully informs and enlightens those who are representing us. And I'll give you an example. Saxby Shambliss is my senior senator from the state of Georgia. He is a Republican and was always thought to be fairly right uh, right wing and more conservative than I or many other people. And he was one of the folks with uh, Senator Warner from Virginia, who was a Democrat, that started the Gang of Six when they were trying to work in a bipartisan fashion on the budget. He has since become a sponsor of our no budget, no pay piece of legislation, which is also bipartisan. Nine senators now are co-sponsors in the Senate, 40 Members of the House are also co-sponsors. How would so, that help, Lisa, no budget, no pay? The way it would help, it's a very simple and straightforward concept. If you don't do your work, you don't get your paycheck, which mirrors what happens in the private sector and the public sector here in Georgia and all across the country. So we are asking the Congress to be as accountable as we are as individual Americans. So what we are hoping is that it will put collective pressure from the electorate to have our congresspersons work and put forth the budget, a reasonable budget, not just the policy document, but also the appropriations bills that are attenuate to the budget to authorize the expenditures. Pressure from the electorate, pressure amongst themselves, the senators and the congresspersons one to the other, because everybody needs their paycheck. Perhaps there are some in Congress who don't need a paycheck, but that is not the vast majority. It perhaps is not a perfect bill, but it is certainly a start. We had a hearing on it in March uh, in the Homeland Security Committee, which was chaired by Senator Lieberman and the ranking member, Senator Collins. And we are hopeful that this will start to break down this polarization on both sides and Sandy, start the discussion about how they can work together. Sandy, are you familiar with that proposal? And do you think that would work, or do you favor other possible measures? Well, I, I certainly believe in the philosophy of the proposal, which is that the Congress should get its act together and do their job, part of which is pass budget annually and appropriations bills annually. Whether this will stimulate them to do so or not, I'm, I'm a little less sanguine than Lisa is. Um, I think that there are you know, basic fundamental differences between the parties, between the members of the parties in the Congress, partic particularly in the House right now, but also in the Senate. I think you find more reasonable senators. Um, although I found it was interesting, they have roughly ten, roughly nine percent of each body has signed on a little more than ten percent in the House and a little less in the in the Senate. Um, but that's still ten percent. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, until you get, I think I look at this interestingly enough because I am I tend to be a Democrat, but I look at it from perspective of Speaker Boehner. Uh, Speaker Boehner is a legislator. He understands trying to find a compromise position, and he did worked with the president very hard on finding a compromise position on deficit reduction 
a little, little less than a year ago, uh, and he couldn't control his own caucus. Um, he couldn't get a majority of the votes out of the Republican caucus, uh, and he was faced with what a colleague and I have called Boehner's Dilemma in a paper that we've written, which is essentially either he has to give in to his caucus or he has to understand he's probably going to lose uh, in, in a speaker's race in his caucus to somebody who is far more ideological than he is. That's a serious problem with legislating. Um, and, I, you know, I think, it, I think there are bills like the no-labels bill, and by the way, I'm one of the half million um, uh, who, who believe in the concept of what they're trying to do. I think those can help, but I think they're really fundamental problems with our, within our party system that are not going to go away and that, that have to be confronted uh, head-on. One way to confront them is uh, not to re-elect re some of these people. Sandy, I'm going to ask you to follow up on some of those uh, measures that, that could be taken to correct the situation. But first, I want to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our topic today is the two-party system in working or broken. Our guests this morning are Lisa Borders, co-founder of No Labels, and Sandy Mizell, professor of government at Colby College. Sandy was talking about some possible measures to start to break down the um, uh, extreme partisanship in Congress, and I'll just ask him to follow up on that, and then I think Lisa had something to throw in, too. Sandy? Well, let me, let me just give you one, uh, one quick one, which is um, in enhancing the role, oddly enough, of political party organizations in the nominating process. People in party organizations don't want these extreme candidates to run either because in many districts they have less chance of winning. So the Republicans probably lost two or three seats in the Senate in the 2010 election because they, they nominated uh, pretty extreme candidates when a moderate candidate would have won. Parties didn't like that, but parties have no formal role. So it, it seems to me that's you know, one pretty clear example of something uh, that could be done. Or, and one way that you can do that is uh, requiring a, an instant runoff system in primaries. Um, I would believe in instant runoff system in general elections as well, which would bring people more towards the center, but I don't think we're likely to see that. And the other way we see is what's happening in the state of Maine, which we're, I think we're very likely to elect a, an independent United States senator. So you think independent candidates more than third-party candidates well, are helpful? You, you raised third parties before, and my problem with third parties is there's an assumption that the 35% of Maine who are unenrolled voters maybe now up to 36 or 37 percent, all agree that all have the same view. I don't think they do. I think some of them actually are far left, and some of them are very far right, and some of them are in the center. But there's, I don't think you're going to find it, a set of issues that they're going to come together around. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Lisa, about independent candidates versus third parties as a corrective? Uh, I, I'm in, in similar thought with Sandy here. Um, let me go back, though, for just a second to no budget, no pay, because it's, a, it's an interesting piece of legislation. It's the only piece of legislation in our Make Congress Work platform. You know, the same type of legislation was passed in California, Proposition 25, and it has taken some time, but it's starting to show significant signs of, of working in that state. And it doesn't mean that we are going to get it all perfect in, in government at the federal level, but certainly we're making some incremental progress, and I think that's important. It didn't take us five minutes to get uh, in this ditch, and it's not going to take five minutes for us to get out, for sure. Uh, when you think about third parties, uh, I would agree that many of the people that are independent really do call themselves that because they mean it. Um, there's so much structure and so much attempt to have people fit in these rigid boxes of D's and R's, 
Uh, I, too, am a Democrat and got just slammed when I was in public office because I was willing to work with anyone, anytime, who had a great idea. I was willing to vet it and wrestle it to the ground, and if it worked, it worked, and if it didn't, it didn't. Um, and I found great objection in a city where most times in a municipal level, people don't really care about what party you are. They just want their darn trash picked up. <laughs> At the federal level, people are starting not to care about whether you're a D or an R. They just want the economy better, and everybody wants to work, and everybody wants to get the health care that they need and take care of their families. And so this notion that I have to stand on one side of the aisle or the other is just not palatable any longer. And so I think that people are in different places in that middle space. And so I think it will be some time before we can really get our arms totally around it and say independents think like this. It's just not going to be that simple to characterize. But when independents, you know, unenrolled candidates, members of neither party, get to the Senate or to the House, can they really be effective in that hyperpartisan atmosphere? Will they be given good committee seats? Will they be given good committee chairs? Well, Angus, uh, the point is made about you and Maine, you guys in Maine might be able to elect an independent senator. And I think the more folks you have like that, frankly, the better the situation will become. So you've got Senator Lieberman, for example, who is obviously from Connecticut. He, too, is retiring. He held this hearing on no budget, no pay, when no one else wanted to touch it. Uh, part of the reason I think he was able to do that is because he's an independent. And he said, you know what, we're doing it. Uh, and he is one of our greatest allies and strongest advocates. Those leaders of the Senate and House chambers, respectively, perhaps if you had folks who were more willing to use both their ears twice as much as they use their mouth, my grandfather, the preacher, used to say, that's why God gave you two ears and one mouth, is so you could listen twice as much as you talked it would be helpful for them to embrace more than just what they believe is the right thing because we are missing out on some tremendous opportunities as a country because of their myopia. And I mean that for both leaders, and I mean no disrespect. All I mean is there has to be a better way because this is not working out for any of us, not the Democrats, not the Republicans, and certainly not this country. Sandy, why don't you comment? How do you think independents in, in the House or in the Senate are going to be able to be effective in the hyperpartisanship that reigns right now? Well, it certainly isn't the panacea, and there, there will not be many of them in any cases. And I think, you know, just even contrasting uh, Senator Lieberman with, with Governor King uh, is sort of is an important uh, way to look at it. Uh, Senator Lieberman became an independent because, of course, he lost a Republican, a Democratic primary, and then he won challenging as an independent uh, in a law that doesn't exist in most states. Usually if you lose a primary, you're not eligible to run, call this or loser law. Um, and he, quite frankly, alienated a great many Democrats when he, not because he was friends with Senator McCain, but because he played such a, a vital role in the McCain campaign. So I don't think he has been as effective as somebody like Governor King can be, um, particularly if the uh, Senate is closely divided. Uh, if the Senate isn't closely divided, he becomes much less uh, important. But if the Senate is closely divided, you know, one vote, it's, it's why we've had a great deal of influence from Senator Snow and Senator Collins and uh, Senator Nelson and, and uh, Voinovich when he was in from Ohio, because it could be the swing vote on key issues. One of the serious problems, and talk about things that you can change, is the Senate requires 60 votes to pass almost any legislation. And whereas 
those of us of a certain age remember when a filibuster was a major event and you only did it on the most important controversial issues of the day. Uh, now you can filibuster anything. And, and uh, because of a rule, actually, that George Mitchell put in when he was Senate Majority Leader, it doesn't even stop the Senate. They run on two tracks, and another track goes along its way, and, and the filibuster holds up the major piece of legislation. Sometimes this has just irritated enough senators uh, that they've done something about it. That when the uh, when they were holding up, the Republicans were holding up a um, group of nominations. I want to take that back because I'm not going to remember if it was Republicans or Democrats who were holding up. There was a group of 14 senators, seven Democrats and seven Republicans, who came together and said, "We are going to pass these." These nominations, that's not what a filibuster should be for. I think you have to change the filibuster rule. Uh, well, I think you have to change it in a fundamental way in order to get legislation done. And then an independent can have much more influence. Andy, I think you're exactly right. And one of the things I, I mentioned earlier, that no budget, no pay is the only piece of legislation that no uh, labels has proposed. But we also propose several process and rules changes. And one of them is the filibuster rule, that you have to be present uh, to call for a filibuster as opposed to just file the paperwork, which gunks up the system right from the from the start. Absolutely and, right. And having said that, there are folks like uh, Senator Murkowski from Alaska, who obviously is not an independent, she still stands as a Republican, who is pushing back on her own party, in particular the, the war on women, this whole discussion about contraception and who should get it and who should have authority over people getting birth control pills. It's just kind of crazy. And she has told her party in no uncertain terms, publicly and otherwise, you guys, you're headed down the wrong path. So to the extent that people stand up against the hyperpartisanship and against the craziness, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have I in front of your name or beside your name. I think to, that's right. To make yeah, the know, system work. She's a, she's a perfect example of that. Senator Murkowski is a good example of another thing as well, and, and, and I think it's important to note that. She... Um, was attacked by the right wing in the Republican Party in her primary, and as I remember, lost and run as run as a one as a write-in. Stayed, stayed with the Republican Party, and I think the more you get people in the Senate or in the House, you know, who survives survive attacks from the ideological extremes of the party, uh, I think they are more likely to say, "Wait a minute, this is going crazy." I think the the one that's going on right now is is Senator Luger from Indiana who's one of the most respected members of the United States Senate, particularly in foreign relations, is getting a, a very difficult primary challenge from the far right in, in his party. And maybe, you know, the last poll I saw, was him up by four points, so it's, it's going to be a tough race. But, I mean, isn't that to the point of Senator Snow's de decision to withdraw, that the moderates are finding the work so difficult and their role so much less effective than it was when it was the gang of 14, now it's just the gang of six and shrinking. I mean, that so seems I think, I so think discouraging. That was the point, and I, you know, I think the reason that, my view, the reason that Angus is likely to win in this state is people in the state of Maine believe exactly what she said. They think we've lost a dedicated public servant. I agree with her on many things. I disagree with her on many other things. Uh, but nobody disagreed that she you know, was a dedicated public servant and worked very hard to find a middle ground on all sorts of issues and felt frustrated by it. And I think... Uh, both the Democrats and the Republicans are going to say in this general election a plague on both your houses. Well, and here's the other thing. At the, at the end of the day, <laughs> I, I know I was always taught it's always darkest before the dawn, Anne. And so we'd like to think that we have reached the absolute bottom <laughs> of the behavior. Uh, the debt crisis we had last summer, 
the downgrade of our credit system. I mean, how much worse could it be before people recognize that they are jeopardizing not just our future, but our today? That every day with this rhetoric and this fighting is a day without innovation and results. And so it is very clear from groups like No Labels that folks are not willing to stand by and let this happen on a routine basis any longer. It's just totally out of control. I'm not, I'm not sure, Lisa, who, who folks are in that sentence, because I agree that that's what the public thinks, and I think that's very important, and I think it's going to have an effect eventually. I'm not yet, I haven't seen evidence yet that the people in Washington or in some of the more partisan state capitals think. No, you're, uh, exactly, uh, you're exactly right. The folks are the people who are members of No Labels, and I think those of us who are, like yourself, who are engaged with No Labels are going to push those elected officials to behave properly or vote them out. You, you said that earlier in the show, and I could not agree with you more. Those people who just stand as an impediment to progress, regardless of what the idea is or the concept, just by virtue of where it originated, that's not going to be tolerated very much longer. Let me, let me raise another issue that I think is important in this, and I really do believe in the electoral process is, is the solution to it. But part of the electoral process that is, that is wrong uh, is the way that most states do redistricting. And uh, the, the problem with redistricting is that, that state legislators, particularly state legislatures that are doing the redistricting, um, draw the districts in order to maximize the return of incumbents and the return of one party of, over the other. So they, they purposefully draw very heavily Republican and very heavily Democratic districts, and very few that are contested. If you have a very heavily Republican district, the, the way to get elected is to win the Republican primary. The way to win the Republican primary is to go far to the right. If you have a very heavily Democratic district, the opposite is true. And what that leads to is high, highly partisan people, ideological people, being elected particularly. Now, this is in the House, not in the Senate. That's the House uh, seats. And I think it's a problem. And, you, and we have, you know, political scientists always like to find you know, sort of the perfect experiments. We have a number of experiments going on where states have gone to different systems. California went to a different system. Iowa has a different system. Arizona has a different system. And what you want is competitive elections where people really have to fight for the center. Mm-hmm. You fight for the center, you're more likely to have centrist candidates nominated. Sure. Um, and I think that you know that's sort of the goal we have. The other positive sign, I, I don't have the, the aphorisms that Lisa has, nor do I see the glass quite as half full as she does. <laughs> but... Um, the other positive sign we have is, is political scientists have talked for the last two decades about the advantage that incumbents have in seeking re-election. And I think there's been some evidence in the last two elections that some more and more incumbents are beginning to lose, both in primaries and in general elections, or at least be very, um, get a real scare. And I think that could, in fact, change the behavior of at least some of them. But I'm, I really worry about, not in a state like Maine, where, you know, so the legislature moves the, di- the district line and includes three towns and takes three towns out or something like that. But in a state that has, you know, 17 or 18 congressional districts like um, uh, Ohio and Illinois and states like that, where you draw the districts very, goes a great deal towards determining what type of people are elected to those seats. Is redistricting part of No Labels platform, Lisa? No, we had not been working on redistricting. We really started uh, with process and rules, and as I mentioned, our only piece of legislation has focused squarely on uh, the budget and on money because that has been the predominant discussion over the last uh, 18 months or so, I guess, and so that we decided to strike where the iron is hot. And, you know, if the money's not right, nothing else is right. Mm-hmm. 
Listen, aside from no labels, what are some of the other developments in third parties or alternatives for organizing to get at this problem? What do either of you make of Americans elect as an alternative to the current structure? Well, Americans elect is in its third iteration. There's one in 2004 and one in 2008. Uh, now Americans elect some of the same people, some different people. You know, it's it's an interesting concept because of the use of technology. Maybe we should explain it to I was going to say, explain to her, yeah. The, the concept behind America's elect is, Americans elect is that anybody can 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 vote essentially for who they uh, want to have as the party's nominee on an internet um, on, a, on a website. Um, you don't have to be Democrat or Republican to do that. They they put up a list of candidates. They have a pool of, of you know uh, showing how these candidates are each doing. Eventually, they're going to have an online convention to nominate a candidate. One candidate will be nominated, and that candidate will choose a running mate of the other party. Uh, and and they are working very hard to get on the ballot. The last time I saw they were on the ballot in, I think, 18 states, and they they maintain still they're going to be on the ballot in all 50 states for their candidates. Um, my problem is they can't find anybody who's very interesting and wants to run for them. Uh, because The professor it, has spoken. <laughs> you know, it's it just, you know, who are these people? You know, Buddy, I'm sorry, Buddy Romer's not going to be president of the United States. <laughs> I, I find it interesting, uh, and but I would tell you that I'm a member of No Labels because I do believe in the two-party system. It is dysfunctional right now. The environment is is uh, toxic, but I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I hear Sandy; he's absolutely correct. It's on its third iteration, and we wish them much luck. I just don't think that's the right approach. At this point, I think we'll invite listeners to join our conversation. Let me remind them first, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Lisa Borders, co-founder of No Labels, and Sandy Mizell, professor of government at Colby College. Our topic today is, is the two-party system working or broken? What do you think? If you have a question for one of our guests, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally at 469-0500. When you do call in, please keep your question or comment brief and relevant to our topic today so that we can make room for as many calls as possible. So, Sandy, what role do you think big money or corporate financing plays in entrenching the status quo or keeping us from breaking out of the ditch that we're in? Well, I think the consequences of the court decision, Citizens United, have, have just begun to be seen in, in the last, this last election, particularly in the Republican nominating process, because what it does is it allows few individuals, um, uh, Adelson being an example like this, of this, to uh, contribute huge sums of money, $10, 15000000 million, I call a huge sum of money, to keep an ideological candidate alive. Um, and you know the process is not working the way it should, largely because once Governor Romney sort of demonstrated that he was a front-runner, people propped up uh, these ideological candidates to run against him because they didn't want a moderate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you, you, are, you are seeing that. Um, I've lost the guy's name. Uh, I think it's Freeze, who is a person who's, who's a big donor behind Santorum. And he has said sort of a frightening concept. He's willing to invest enough money in eight cent a and eight cent a contest to make the difference. That's yeah. frightening. Yeah. I mean, that isn't what our system should be built on. And basically, what he's saying to make the difference in an ideologically right, conservative direction. Um, 
that but, isn't, again, I, I agree with what Lisa said, it isn't a right or left on the spectrum. We can find uh, people on the far left who would do the same kind of thing. I just think that's wrong. That isn't yeah. how our system is supposed to be built. We do have a caller. Um, so when you're on the air, give us your name. Tell us where you live. Um, you're on the air, and go ahead with your question or comment. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. The two-party system is not broken. It functions quite well at creating an impediment to progress that places the entire legislative apparatus in opposition to the national interest and the desires of the populace. The fake Republican-Democratic dichotomy is an example of the conspiracy's program of order out of chaos to create a suitable context for total crowd control. Freedom begins with freedom from government oppression. Stay home on Tuesday. Hold incumbents accountable. Thank you for putting on this program and to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thank you for your call. Do either one of you want to comment on the comment? A little, little difficult to deconstruct it, I think. <laughs> I was going to say, that was a lot of information in a very short period of time. You know, it sounds like uh, some of the comments I used to hear when I would go to town hall meetings here in Atlanta, folks who are just really frustrated. Uh, and so I would encourage folks to turn that frustration into constructive energy and work with folks like No Labels or whatever community organization or civic organization that they choose. Don't stand on the sidelines. If you stand on the sidelines and just complain, you are guaranteed to get the same thing that we have today. I and agree with that. I mean, how, how can one argue logically, stand, don't vote on Tuesdays and hold the incumbents accountable. If you don't right. vote on Tuesdays, the incumbents are going to win. Exactly. Uh, exactly. They might so win with I, a small I, number of votes, but they don't care. Yeah, I appreciate the perspective, but I would invite, encourage, implore, beg, and plead that gentleman to come get engaged with everybody else as opposed to complain. We have another caller. Um, give us your first name. Tell us where you live. And go ahead with your question or comment. You're on the air. Hi, I'm Ed from Trenton, and I, I'd like to know if anybody has an idea of uh, what an alternative to uh, the two-party system or a uh, a practical one, which wouldn't allow for uh, a candidate that somebody really wants. Uh, well, let me put it this way. When you're voting for the two parties, obviously, sometimes you're voting for the lesser of two evils, and you'd rather vote for somebody else, but you might be afraid that you're going to elect the one that you want the least by voting, uh, uh, voting, uh, not voting for a certain pro candidate. I'm not being articulate right now because I'm just... No, but I but I'd like to know. Uh, no, you exactly articulate. Let me let me give you a real quick example of of how a system could work. It would involve sort of a, a fundamental change in the way we run elections. But there's a system that is in use in a number of communities called instant runoff or alternative votes. And basically, it says when you have three candidates or four candidates on the ballot, you don't just vote for one; you rate them one, two, three, and four. Um, and if nobody gets a majority of the votes, the bottom name drops off the list and his or her votes are reallocated to their second choice. If nobody gets the nominee, if all done by computer at this point, of course, if nobody gets a majority the second time around, the uh, last name, which is now the third name, drops off the list, and his or her votes are reallocated. And the fourth time around, the, third, the next time around, somebody's going to have a majority because there are only two candidates. Look at what would, happen, would have happened in the 2010 gubernatorial election in Maine is a, is a great example of that. 
most, or another one we could use is the uh, uh, 2000 uh, presidential election in, in uh, Florida. But it, most people think in Maine in 2010, uh, at the end of the first round, uh, Governor uh, LePage had 39%, Governor uh, uh, Elliot Richardson had 38%, and Libby Mitchell had the rest, which was 22 or 23, something like that. If under this system, Mitchell is dropped off the list, and people who voted for her would have gone to their second choice. Now, everybody says automatically they'll all go to Cutler. They wouldn't have all gone to Cutler. But I would say if 75% of them went to Cutler, um, or if something of that nature, he would have been elected um, would have been elected governor, and there would have been more people who, in fact, favored him or favored either he or Mitchell than favored LePage. In Florida in 2000, when, when Ralph Nader had you know, only 80,000 votes or something like that, but, but Bush and Gore were separated by 571, um, if you divide up the Gore votes, even if uh, the, the Nader votes, even if you go 60-40 for Gore, or wins the election. So I think it could make a big difference. People say that Bill Clinton wouldn't have won his first election with Ross Perot in the race if we'd had ranked choice voting in that I think race. Bill it may not have won if Ross Perot had never dropped out of the race. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Uh, well, of course, uh, sorry, Ed, I was just going to say um, it's just interesting to note that we have um, ranked choice voting in Portland who elected uh, their new mayor that way this year. Um, but go ahead, Ed. I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, well, I'd like to suggest that since we don't have that kind of a system going most of the time here, that that somehow I'd like to see us as voters, if we do vote for a candidate we prefer not to have to vote for, uh, that we make it known somehow publicly that that this is what we've done. Because I don't like to see history uh, set down that that our votes were for a certain candidate uh, uh, when it re- when they really weren't, I think we should let the public know that we are that we didn't really want that candidate. Actually, actually, we do that. It's just not publicized very well. But exit polls always ask people a question. You know, in the, when there's a third candidate, they always ask the question, "Who would your choice be if you if they say they were for for?" I haven't met that. I'm afraid. Uh, well, it just doesn't publicize very well. But they're always asked. Uh, Somebody's okay. asked. I've never been yeah. asked either, but. Thank you for your call, Ed. Let me just remind our listeners again, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Lisa Borders, co-founder of No Labels, and Sandy Mizell, professor of government at Colby College. We're taking your calls right now. If you have a question for one of our guests, you can join the conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or locally, 469-0500. We were talking a minute ago about money in politics, Lisa, and I I wanted to give you a chance to answer that question, too. Do you think big corporate money or even big personal money plays a role in entrenching um, hyper-partisanship? I do, actually. Anybody who can spend $10, $12, 15000000 million and just bombard the airways with any message, a negative message, a positive message, whatever the message is, that's going to make a difference. Uh, you'd like to believe that people get their news and their information from so many channels that it wouldn't be a problem. That's just not the case. The same is true if you look at uh, any commercial item that people are trying to sell, whether it's a bag of Cheetos or Coca-Cola. 
that makes a difference. People buy it or the brands wouldn't be as big as they are. So clearly that impact is going to be felt. You'd like to believe that there are enough, I say objective channels that people would tune into, but we can't legislate or mandate where people get their information. So it's frightening when you see a market like Chicago or Atlanta, New York, Charlotte, wherever, get bombarded that way, you saw very clearly, we all did, uh, right before our very eyes, it swayed the voters. Uh, and so it's very difficult for people to cull out what's the truth mm. and what's an exaggeration. We have another caller on the line. Thank you for calling. Give us your first name. Tell us where you live. Um, go ahead with your question or comment. You're on the air. Uh, yes, Lindy in Southwest Harbor. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, first of all, I just want to say that I agree with Yo's comment who called in a little while ago. Yes, the system is working. It's not defunct. It's working for very few people, the upper middle class, if there is any such middle class. But, you know, who's missing from the equation really is, is the um, <coughs> people of uh, the citizens. I mean, there's such apathy and indifference to um, what our political... Uh, processes. My heart grieves for the Iraqi people that were attacked um, by the Bush administration and, and his um, warlords. And now that's behind us, and we're moving on to the next, trying frothing at the bit to uh, bomb Israel because of our alliance with the Israeli uh, lobby. And um, it, it, the, the, the system is a shambles. It's just in utter chaos. I mean, how did we get governor? I don't even want to call him governor. How did we get this horrible uh, governor LePage? Because of the voting system, you know, he slipped in between. Uh, he slipped in, and yes, he ran a, a uh, horrible campaign against Cutler. I believe Cutler is 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 suing him. Um, and LePage took that uh, Judy Taylor's work down, representing labor down at midnight without even consulting her and you cannot have a business without labor. But where is the outrage in Maine? Where is the outrage? Do you hear it? I'd like, I don't even hear out any outrage in your voices speaking today about politics as they are. And then I would like to ask that man who was discussing the process of, you know, I couldn't quite catch it all, but it sounded interesting that if the, the vote, that process that describes, you know, how you could get somebody that you wanted rather than somebody that you didn't want because of the way it's set up now. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Ranked choice voting. Yep. Yeah. yeah. What is it called? It's called, alternatively, it's called either instant runoff voting or ranked choice voting. Yeah. Um, so I would like to know, what would it take to get, to get that process in place? I mean, I yep. would like to know what that would take, because I was very much involved with um, recalling LePage, and that thing is we don't even have a process for recalling uh, a run amok uh, governor, but uh, <clears throat> so I would like to know what would it take for that process to uh, <clears throat> be uh, well, implemented. Thank you so much for taking your time and energy uh, to be on today to everyone there. Thanks, Lindy. Go ahead, Sandy. The process of what it takes is pretty simple. The politics is not so simple. The process is either an act of the legislature or a citizen initiative. Uh, either one could could force that on. It, it passed in Portland by a. I guess an initiative in, in Portland, or was it a city council vote? I don't even remember. Uh, they, it was part of a new charter. 
sorry, as part of the new charter, which mm-hmm. then had to be voted on. Right. Um, but in you know, it, in in the cities where it has been passed, it is it has been done by by either legislate the city councils or by vote of the people. Uh, and there there are lots of ways in which systems have been changed uh, by votes of the people. But people have to care enough. We we have our public financing system uh, because of a vote of the people, not because the legislature wanted it. And I mean, I've uh, observed the legislature for each each of the last you know four or five sessions, and there's been an instant running instant runoff voting or a ranked choice bill introduced almost every session that I've been there, and yep. it it has not gotten through legislative committee. It might have more favor now, given the last president's uh, gubernatorial election, although not 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 among the Republicans. Um, we do have another caller on the air. Um, go ahead, give us your first name. Tell us where you live. Go ahead with your question or comment. Thanks for calling. Um, my name is Jay. I'm calling from Cedric. Full disclosure, I am a programmer there on the station, but uh, I'm calling as a citizen and not as a, a voice of WRU today. I'm just wondering if, the, if, if your guests have made any parallels between... Uh, some of the topics you've been talking about, and something that grew up, uh, something that uh, rose up uh, in my old part of the country, in uh, the Upper Midwest, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, North Dakota, uh, an organization called the Nonpartisan League, which I think was a very similar response to some of the frustrations with both of the political parties back in those days, back in the Theodore Roosevelt era. Um, two of my great-grandfathers were involved in this uh, organization, and they really meant what they said. They, were, they did not belong to political parties. Some of their, <clears throat> some of their postures might have been taken as, uh, as extremely left-wing at the time, and some of them might have been taken as extremely conservative. Uh, it's been said that uh, if, uh, if, if William Jennings Bryan and Emma Goldman had had a child, it would have been the nonpartisan league. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just wondering if... Uh, if your guests have, uh, can, can make vivid any, uh, <laughs> yeah, vivid image indeed. Uh, I just wonder if you've uh, if you've ever explored this uh, historical connection with with what's going on right now. And I'll hang up and listen. Thanks, Thanks Jay. That's a, that's a good question. I certainly have looked at the nonpartisan league, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party in in Minnesota, and the other parties that came out of the progressive era in the Midwest. I don't, I'm not quite sure. I see a parallel. A lot of them came out of the response to bossism. Uh, and to uh, a lack of response to uh, independent farmers in, in the upper Midwestern states. Was it really uh, a party? It, uh, it ran. It ran successfully. Ran candidates in in North Dakota. It replaced the Democratic Party as a minority party in Minnesota for a while, and then the, the in fact what we call the Democratic Party in Minnesota is really the Democratic Farm Labor Party. They merged uh, because. Quite frankly, the system is stacked in favor of a two-party system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you, you were you were electing people you didn't want to uh, elect by dividing a similar vote. Well, I think the the parallel, and I, I appreciate Sandy's uh, historical context. I think I'm the, very old. <laughs> no, no, no. I think that the parallel may be that the uh, nonpartisan league became a voice of those who felt they were disenfranchised. Uh, and frankly, I, I hear this frustration from your callers in Maine, and it's breaking my heart. I mm-hmm. thought Georgia was the only one that had problems that were as deep as, as uh, we've experienced. But I, I see it's all over the country when we when we do these interviews. And so, for the nonpartisan league back in those days uh, to speak up and be a collective voice for the farmers or the labor folks or whoever was engaged at the time, I think there is a parallel there. 
we as American people have been disenfranchised, whether we recognize it or not, by the hyperpartisanship because no progress is being made. We are at an absolute stalemate, uh, and this this inability to get anything moved forward is is really hurting us. So that's that's the parallel that I see. Listeners, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters. Our guests this morning are Lisa Borders, co-founder of No Labels, and Sandy Mizell, professor of government at Colby College. Our topic today is the two-party system working or broken. What do you think? If you have a question or comment for one of our guests, you can join the conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378. It looks like we do have another caller Go ahead, let us know your first name, where you live, and um, give us your question or comment. You're on the air. Hi, this is Tim O. from Brooklyn. I, uh, the, the comment um, that the, the um, woman just made about hyperpartisanship, it's certainly true that the right has been hyperpartisan. The left has been quiet. To, in, from I grew up in the 60s, and I remember... A totally different dynamic. It just seems like it's been switched around, and the fascists are are the ones who are pushing all the change. I'm looking at in Tennessee, the governor is getting ready to sign a bill that says that instead of teaching science, that no teacher will be in trouble if they teach ignorance and stupidity. That that they can teach that global warming isn't happening that they can teach evolution is is debatable the the rest of the world is looking at america china's looking at us and scratching their head in dumbfound they're dumbfounded at what we're doing it's unbelievable and as far as partisanship i think we need some partisanship but we need the left to rise up and if the democratic party doesn't do it and doesn't stand up and fight you know obama got in he didn't fight he rolled over he rolled over when when BP poisoned the, the Gulf of Mexico, first with, with a quarter billion gallons of oil, why aren't those people in jail? And then they, 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 they allowed a cover-up but with two million gallons of engine degreaser, and things are dying down there. We, we need partisanship. We need it from the left, that we need to fight, or they're going to kill us. Thank you. And so for our guests, what do you think? Is it, the, is it uh, symmetrical? Is it the same in both parties um, when we talk about hyperpartisanship? I think there's enough culpability to go around, and I, I appreciate that caller's perspective. Uh, I am a Democrat, but I, I find that I have colleagues at the local level, state level, and federal level who are just as extreme uh, as folks are on the right. And so we see a lot of discussion today about the Tea Party and the Tea Party candidates, and the media has labeled people and put us in these boxes. It doesn't mean that the hyperpartisanship is all on one side of the table. Frankly, that's just not the case. If you really pay attention and listen to the folks that are talking, uh, I'm not thrilled with everything President Obama has done, but he's done a whole heck of a lot. Um, I'll start with the Affordable Care Act. I work in the healthcare industry in my day job. And when I look at what he has proposed, as opposed to what was there when he got there, he's made an awful lot of progress. Whether you like the bill or don't like the bill, the man's got to get credit for trying to get something done. We certainly will see what the Supreme Court says in June about the individual mandate and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, 50 million people without health care cannot possibly be a good thing. 
So I would say that the left has been fighting. The left continues to fight. And there are many, like himself, who feel like President Obama has done absolutely nothing. And I, I frankly think that's just not true. When President Obama was elected, folks said he was going to be weak on defense and weak on foreign affairs. And then he captured and killed Osama bin Laden, or the troops did at his direction. So I really think we have to be very careful saying that all culpability is on one side of the table. I just don't believe that. What's your view, Sandy? We had a guest on our first show here who just came on and said that it was all Republicans. Do you feel it's uh, symmetrical, hyperpartisanship? Or well, I, I think it is. I think clearly the amount that we see on the media is mostly the Republicans now because of the Republican uh, nominating contest, but and because of the uh, the ability of the Republicans in the in the Congress to retard President Obama's programs that he's put in. I think that the Affordable Care Act is really an important example here because the reason the mandate is in the Affordable Care Act as opposed to a tax or a, as opposed to a, a true national universal health care plan is because the, the Democrats compromised. Um, and Democrats on the far left are livid that he compromised that much. That's what he felt he needed to do, what, what he did need to do in order to get a number of enough votes through uh, to pass the bill. And he did that without any Republican support. There were Democrats who wouldn't give him the support at that point. On the other hand, if the Democrats were out of office, I think you would see the exact same amount of hyperpartisanship from the far left. Um, I don't think there's a good guy and a bad guy in this. I think that, that both parties are, are guilty, but you just simply see more of it in the Republican Party now uh, than you do in the Democratic Party. We're coming down to the last five minutes of the show, and I want to give you uh, both each a chance to talk a little bit more about what could be done, because we're here to engage citizens in collective action for democracy, and I want to end up on a, a note where we can take action and go someplace and get something done. So let me just ask you each in turn to give us some parting thoughts. We've talked about ranked choice voting, redistricting reform, filibuster reform, no budget, no pay. What do you think are the most important things that citizens um, could engage in to make a difference on this topic, and where can they go to get help doing that? So I'll give it uh, to you first, Sandy, and then to Lisa. Well, I think those reforms are very important, and I think that it is difficult to engage. I, I really applaud what you all are trying to do, because I think it's very difficult to engage citizens in reform that are not tied directly to substance, uh, health care, to unemployment, to, raise it, to lowering the deficit or something. But I do believe that ranked choice voting is a very important uh, issue, I think, how we nominate candidates is a very important issue. Uh, but one of the problems that, that we have in the state of Maine is that we have this long, it's not a problem, I think it's a good thing, but it, it's for attacking these issues. We have this really long tradition of, of politicians who are independent, who find a middle way. You know, it is not just Senators Cohen and, and uh, Senator uh, Collins and, and uh, Snow, Senator Cohen and even Senator Mitchell was highly partisan, were legislators and understood legislating. And uh, our members of the House, Mike Michaud and, and Charlie Pingree, certainly fall into that category as well. They may be partisan, but they understand wh uh, where it's necessary to, to make these kind of changes. So it's pretty difficult in Maine. I think nationally, I, I do think changing the filibuster rule in the Senate is critically important, that, and that our senators can take a lead in that. I think uh, um, Senator Collins uh, hasn't come out in, in favor of that, and I think she could. I would, I would bet if Governor King is elected, he would be in favor of that. We don't uh, have a citizen initiative at the federal level. Like we couldn't change the no, filibuster. No, there is no citizen initiative at the, at the federal. 
And I do think, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a transition moment here, I do think groups like No Labels are very important in that. Uh, what, I don't underst- what I don't know about No Labels, and Lisa can talk to us about it, is there are a half a million members, and we've seen that number a lot. I don't know how many are active members. I'm a member of No Labels. I'm not an active member. Uh, and it seems to me getting people active, in, and it, it's very difficult to say I'm going to be vehemently in favor of the center. It's just much easier to be vehemently in favor of the left or the right. And I think that's what part of the problem is. Lisa, go ahead. Take a turn. Sure, absolutely. I think the most important thing is for people to get engaged. Uh, I hear a lot on radio interviews like this when folks call in, they are just so angry. Uh, And I think we've got to take that negative energy and turn it into positive energy. Most folks don't even know who their individual representatives are or their senators. And I think without sharing information with those folks, your ideas, your insights, your concerns, it's very difficult to hold them accountable. So I'm going to say the most important thing is for folks to get engaged. No Labels, of course, I believe is the most effective vehicle. I helped co-found it along with a host of other folks. Uh, Sandy's right. We have half a million folks. People engage when they can and if they can. Many of them are digital activists that are on their computers at 2 o'clock in the morning sending emails. Others who are retirees are able to go to the offices of their elected officials and actually present the Make Congress Work platform. So I would say personally get engaged and understand who your representatives are, number one. Number two, join a group like No Labels, which allows you to have your individual voice, of course, but allows you to have a collective voice. We have a platform that we have developed. We have a website that folks can learn more about, No Labels, and what the Make Congress Work platform is. The No Budget, No Pay piece of legislation is one item out of 12. Filibuster reform is there. Having the president come before the Congress and answer questions once a month is there. Uh, There's a vote up or down uh, in 90 days on presidential appointees. So there's a whole smorgasbord of opportunities for you to weigh in on as a collective and have even greater voice than you might have as an individual. And Anne, let me just thank you and the League of Women Voters, uh, along with Sandy, for inviting me to participate on behalf of No Labels and certainly for the service that you're providing there for the community through the League of Women Voters activities and for this uh, program today. Thank you. I was just going to plug the League of Women Voters myself. I appreciate your doing it for me. <laughs> we are out of time this morning. Um, thank you to our guests, Lisa Borders, co-founder of No Labels, and Sandy Mizell, professor of government at Colby College. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Joel Mann, our engineer at WERU. Thank you to our listeners and our callers. If you have a suggestion for a topic or guest on a future democracy forum or to join the League of Women Voters, call us at 6220256 or look us up at lwvme.org. Thank you. Good morning. Back by popular demand, it's WERU's Spring Fling Music and Gear Sale on Saturday, April 28th from 11 to 4 at the Belfast Boathouse, 34 Commercial Street, Belfast. Not only does WERU provide you with incredible and diverse music on the air, our sale will feature plenty of other ways.